Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. I was on temporary assignment in Connecticut for a medical school rotation in anesthesia in September 2000. I was driving to work at 5 a.m. when I called in and won tickets to a show at Toad's. The show was a little-known 80s act called The The. Only about 20-ish people there. Great show. Some tall dude came up and told me I looked too young to know the band. Not a great pickup line, but it got him a drink after the show. And I agreed to meet him for a Wilco show also at Toad's the next weekend. Yeah, so we've been together for 21 years living in Connecticut. One of us from Alabama, the other from Ireland. And we met at a gig at Toad's. All right, so that was Jennifer, uh, Jennifer from Middlebury. And you can hear Wilco uh, in the background. I don't know that we have any uh, recordings of the, the. Uh, is the, the, I think I actually sort of remember the, the. Were they related to And, And, And? Because that was the band that some of the people and the commitments were leaving to join the, commit, uh, the commitments. Anyway, that's not what this show is about. What the show is about is two really legendary clubs uh, in Connecticut. Now, we've done shows, uh, a show about Shabu in the past. We're going to get back to them uh, towards the end of the show today with David Foster. But right now, we're, we've never done a show about Toad's Place. Uh, Toad's Place has been around, it might seem, forever. That's pretty close, about uh, more than 45 years, I think, at this point. Uh, and uh, there's a new book out about them by uh, Randy Beach, Randall Beach, I should say, uh, Randy to me, maybe, a columnist for Connecticut Magazine, former reporter, columnist, and rock music critic for the New Haven Register. Uh, he's the co-author, as I say, of The Legendary Toad's Place, stories from New Haven's famed music venue. Also with us, Brian Phelps, the owner of Toad's Place and the co-author of that very same book, whose long title I'm not going to say again. Uh, I mean, not like at the second anyway, I will say. It. I, I should mention that uh, Brian and Randy, they're going to do a virtual event Monday, November 15th with the Case Memorial Library of Orange. You can register for that event at casememoriallibrary.org. Uh, you can buy their book at the Toad's Place website. But mainly what we want to do right now is uh, tell some stories uh, about this crazy place uh, uh, called Toad's Place. Uh, I'm so old that I remember being an undergraduate in college when it was Hungry Charlie's. Uh, and uh, I think maybe uh, at least one of our guests remembers Hungry Charlie's too. Uh, Brian Phelps, maybe you can just begin by just telling us the story of how you got involved with Toad's Place as it was kind of going through its birth pains. And that story, oddly enough, involves a broken window, uh, a huge nuisance to you at the moment, but without which your life might have gone rather differently. That's correct. Uh, even before I did that, I should mention briefly that uh, as a student in college, I went with a friend of mine to Hungry Charlie's because you just mentioned it. And um, we had a, a burger and then there was going to be a band coming on. And so they wanted to charge everybody 50 cents to see this band room full of blues. And the place was about one third the size. And, and I didn't, all I had was a quarter. My buddy had a quarter. So he said, how about the 50 cents for the both of us? And uh, the girl that was collecting said, Oh, okay. I'll take it. So we were able to, to stay and watch the show for 50 cents, but that was when I was, I think, a freshman or a sophomore in college. But anyways, to get into your 
to get into your question, uh, further on down the road, um, I had a, a karate school around the corner that I took over in 1974. I had started working out in 1971. My prior instructor wanted to move to California and he had nobody to sell the school to. So, um, he, so he sold it to me. I was the only one of the possible takers. So I had it for a little bit and this was around mid 1975 and Toads had just opened several months earlier. And um, we were playing poker up there. The classes were over for the, for the evening. And um, maybe there were five or six of us. And we hear this smash downstairs. And it was a glass door that led to the third floor. The third floor is where um, the karate school was. The second floor was um, a stereo place, I believe. And the third floor was, or the first floor was uh, an Army Navy store that later became uh, 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 Cutler's too. So I went down and sure enough, the window was broken and our sandwich board sign was taken. So we decided to look around the area and see if, if we could find the sign because we figured if we found the sign, we'd find the culprit. So we walked around in front of Toads and um, there it was, the sign was, was there. And so we walked in and we started asking people. It wasn't like a huge crowd there. So um, a, a few of the people were talking to us and they said, yeah, that guy over there um, put the sign there because there were all open windows and when, while you were eating, you could see out the windows. So he pointed the guy out to us and my guys were ready to go out and attack this guy. And then Mike Sperndle, who was um, the, um, one of the three owners at the time, but he was the biggest guy. He was also the, the owner and the bouncer and the chef and he did all these different things. And he comes over and he says, hold on, hold on a minute. Um, you don't, you don't, you don't want to do this. So let's just talk about it. We'll, call, we'll get the cops down here and arrest the guy. So I said, okay, call the cops. So um, Sperno calls the cops. My guys are eyeing this other guy down who happened to be a, an off-duty um, army guy who was stationed in Germany, who was probably just drunk, moving around the streets and doing stupid things. So the cops came and arrested the guy and uh, Sperno and I got to talking and he said, why don't you come on down anytime you want and uh, see me, we'll, we can talk and, uh, and socialize. So I said, okay, so he gave me his card now, I didn't know anything about nightclubs in those days. I, I don't think I ever was at a nightclub. You know, Brian, I'm just going to push you along a little bit just because we only have 47 minutes for this show. Yeah. And we want to talk yeah. about the music. I mean, basically, the way this story comes out is that's how you uh, and Mike Spurnell kind of formed an alliance right. that went on that's to right. continue. That was it right there, right. Yeah. So, uh, listen, we, I think, you know, Randy, we want to talk about some of the musicians uh, who, who made the place legendary. Uh, and they're from all kinds of different genres. They're also often from very different points in their their career, although I think the classic Toad's Place guest is maybe that musician who's about to hit big, R.E.M., before they hit big, Huey Lewis, before he hits big. You just get to, you catch this wave at just the right moment. But let's talk about a guy who had more of a kind of permanent status as a musical legend. Uh, that's uh, John Prine. Uh, let's hear a, a little bit of him right now, Cat. Salesman, 
So, Randy, uh, first of all, you probably have attended as many shows at Toad's Place as anybody who didn't actually work for Toad's Place. I, I don't know. Do you ha- do you ha- do you remember the John Prine show? I remember it very well because uh, I had the great fortune of being able to interview John Prine. This is one of the great things about Toad's and, and covering shows um, in New Haven at that time at a, at a small club where you get an opportunity to sit down before the show or after the show. I had the same thing with Tom Waits, which was a wonderful interview. John Prine was just the way you expect, it's the way he sounds in his music. He's a really down-to-earth, friendly guy, folksy, a former mailman. And all he wanted to do when I talked to him that afternoon was get down to Louie's lunch and get <laughs> one of those hamburgers because he found out about it. Unfortunately, uh, it was closed that day, so he never got his uh, his Louie's hamburger. But he put on a fabulous show later that night. And uh, I just remember everyone holding a, a beer can or, or a a glass aloft and um, and singing along to Illegal Smile. And it was, it was just a wonderful memory and a wonderful night. Uh, and that was really, I discovered John Prine really that night, although I had his first album and listened to it and liked it. Through the years, I really, really uh, developed an affection for him. But that was the first night. And uh, that's one of my really special Toad's memories. So our producer for this episode, Betsy Kaplan, reached out to a lot of people on social media, uh, and, and we got a huge amount of responses to uh, the question of what are your memories about Toad's Place? What are your mem- memories about Shabu? You heard that clip from Jennifer at the beginning talking about uh, meeting her her future husband uh, at, a, at a gig at Toad's Place. And, and, you know, Brian, that wasn't even the only one that we got of, that wasn't the only I met my future husband at a Toad's Place thing. And you, you must also be aware of an awful lot of relationships or marriages or whatever that kind of kindled there in front of musical acts. Yeah, we've had uh, tons and tons of people that have met Toads over the years, um, go either watching a show together or just bumping into one another at a, at a dance party. And we, we used to have a Wednesday night dance parties that were open to the um, more or less all the people in Connecticut, all the um, relative Connecticut folks. And um, so many of them have, have met. As a matter of fact, um, not only did they meet, but they got married and they had children. And indirectly, I'm responsible for all the, for all those tens of thousands of children that are walking around today. Right. And actually, as the book points out, a number of people uh, consummated their marriages before getting married and may have also produced offspring um, kind of, you know, on the premise. <laughs> On the premises, there's a few pages uh, describing uh, amorous encounters at at Toad's Place, which there will be in a rock and roll venue. So, you know, I was saying, Randy, that... that, you know, one of the sort of classic things for a venue like Toads is, yeah, you catch you catch somebody on the way up. They're ready to sell out 750 seats. Maybe they're not ready to sell out 11,000 seats. But the other thing that has happened with Toads is on multiple occasions, as the book amply documents, performers, superstar performers, have showed up at Toads, either because they want to warm up for a tour, as was the case of the Rolling Stones, or because they want to record in a lot of different venues for a live album, including including a smaller venue or two, as was the case with, with Billy Joel, or they want to come over there after their New Haven Coliseum gig, as was the case with, with Bruce Springsteen. So I don't know, Randy, Randy pick one of those uh, as one of your favorite stories uh, of a superstar showing up at Toads. Well, um, certainly when, when Bob Dylan came, um, it was a few months after the 
Stones had been there in January 1990, and uh, he was rehearsing for, for a tour, and uh, everyone there, including Brian and Mike Spurndle, expected he would just um, be there for uh, one set, you know, start around 9 o'clock, we'd be out of there by 10.30 or so, and uh, he played a great set. And what we noticed was we had the, the, the happy Bob Dylan, the happy to be here Dylan. Some nights you'll get Bob Dylan who turns his back on you, doesn't want to talk to you and is in a bad mood. He was smiling. He was taking requests. Someone said, hey, could do a Springsteen, do Dance in the Dark. And he said, okay. And he consulted with his uh, fellow musicians, G.E. Smith and uh, a couple other guys. And they uh, worked out the chords and they turned around and did Dance in the Dark just like that. And, and um, so we were all enjoying it. And then he, they kind of left the stage after an hour. We said, well, I guess that's it. They didn't say goodnight or, or no encore or anything. That was a nice show. And then it turned out that they were downstairs and, and Brian went down. So, well, so what's going on? And, uh, and Dylan said, well, can we do another set? And Brian said, well, sure, sure. Yeah, you can do another set. And this happened again and again and again. And they ended up doing four sets until 2.20 in the morning. He did 50 songs ending with like a Rolling Stone, 2.20 in the morning. And uh, Brian was able to uh, work with the police or a lot of police there, New Haven police enjoying the show and um, made sure that he shut down the bar two o'clock and confiscated all the drinks. But I just thought it was hilarious. And at one point, Brian, I think, heard them, uh, heard Dylan going back up, up, up the stairs to do another set. And he said, I can't believe everyone's just sort of hanging around to hear us rehearse for a tour. And like, well, well, you're Bob Dylan. Of course, we'll stay here all night as we did. Fortunately, at that point, my wife and I didn't have kids, and we could stay there as long as Dylan did. Uh, other people like Jimmy Coplick, uh, Mike Lapatino, P.O.R., they had to go home and you know rejoin their wives or get the babysitter paid off. Um, so, yeah, and, and you know, that indefatigability, I can't even say that word, uh, of certain musicians. I mean, I'm ready to go to bed at 10, 10 o'clock most nights. A lot of musicians are just getting warmed up then. You you know, uh, Brian, you had Springsteen at, at the, the early, early peak of his career or one of his many peaks of his career uh, doing the New Haven Coliseum. And, and somebody came, came up with the idea of asking him, would he possibly consider coming over to Toads after that? Uh, and the answer was an emphatic yes. So how did that go? Um, well, John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band were playing. And John Cafferty went over to the Coliseum and asked um, Bruce uh, if he would come down. And, and he was basically doing a Springsteen uh, 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 cover band show. So uh, he even talked like him. He believed he was <laughs> Springsteen uh, in his dreams. So um, when he went down to talk to him, I'm sure Springsteen picked up on this and he said, okay, I'll come down. And uh, he drove his bus down and, uh, and sure enough, jumped out and, uh, and, and, he, and he played uh, played for a while with the band. And that's after, I mean, Springsteen does, legendarily does three and a half hour shows. And, and I think he'd done one of those at the Coliseum. So, yeah, uh, a lot of people would be tired and sweaty and want to go back to their hotel and not uh, Springsteen. All right. We're going to grab a break here. We're talking uh, about we're telling stories from Toad's Place uh, and we'll take a little break. We'll come back with more of Brian and Randy. What's the matter with me? I don't have much to say. Sneaking through the window and I'm still in this old night cafe Walking to and fro beneath the moon Out to where the trucks are rolling slow Sit down on this bank of sand and 
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevating health. I would never love music the way that I do now, especially live music without toads. I should probably start with like the first concert I went to there. I asked my best friend at the time, he's still one of my best friends, Kevin Mezik, if he would go see the Beast Coast Tour with me. Um, it was Joey Badass, Flatbush Zombies, and the Underachievers. And of course, I had to ask my mom if I could go. And after a couple of weeks of convincing and begging and cleaning the house a couple of times, she let me go. Um, but the only stipulation was she had to park right outside of Toads and wait for us the whole time. So she ended up buying all the security guards coffee and I don't know, that was like the night that I fell in love with concerts. Um, I ended up seeing some massive acts there and some really dope shows. I saw Post Malone there for like $10 and that was unreal. The most notable show I ever went to is probably the time I covered the Cardi B show. I covered Toad shows for about two years for the indie and there was about 100 people there and I was one of three guys there and it was the week that Bodak Yellow had come out and... It was just such a fun concert to cover, like not only for her, but the fact that I spent the whole night like ducking and diving. It was just something I'll never forget. <laughs> I just love Toads, like simple as that. That's Sam Hadleman, a uh, longtime friend. Well, he'd be a longtime friend of the show. You know, he's, he's a, but he's a Generation Z um, uh, Toads Place user. Uh, and Sam is also a, a legend in his own right. And the host of the Sam Hadleman Show, which you can hear on a radio station in Brooklyn right now. So with us right now, Randy Beach and Brian Phelps together. They are the uh, co-authors of the legendary Toads Place, stories from New Haven's famed music venue. On Facebook, people have chimed in. Jerry says, Buddy Guy, Maceo Parker, Robin Hitchcock, Iggy Pop, Urge Overkill, The Sundays are the ones that spring to mind. First, Suzanne Sayers says, I loved going to Toads Place. Best show, probably Poi Dog Pondering in the early 90s. I just want to say that that's going to be one of the few people who remembers Poi Dog Pondering, except for maybe our guest today. So um, there's so many stories to tell, and but I think maybe I can take, get you to tell one, Brian, that kind of combines two things. Uh, one of them being one of your two, quote unquote, house bands in RBQ uh, and one of your celebrity guests, John McEnroe, and it maybe even combines a third element because the book also talks about people who were not always 100 percent pleasant to deal with. So tell tell the story about John McEnroe and NRBQ. Well, we had uh, NRBQ at the same time the New Haven tennis uh, tournament was going on at the time. It was both the men and the women having separate tournaments and, uh, on this particular week. And John McEnroe, uh, being a music guy himself, would sometimes come over um, after he was done. So he popped in and 
I was uh, waiting for him and um, and he said, hey, Brian, because uh, I knew him from past uh, times when he visited. Um, do you think I can play a, a song with the band? So I said, I don't know. Let me let me check. So I checked with the tour manager and um, and he checked with the band and uh, they were on stage at the time because it was starting to get late. And um, Terry, uh, who was the kind of like the leader of the band, um, he made all the decisions and he said, well, listen, tell him uh, um, if, if I'm going to play tennis, um, I'll, I'll jump on one of his uh, uh, tournaments and play with him um, if, if uh, you know, if he wants to come and play on stage with us. But I don't think any of that's going to work out. So um, tell him to hold off. Let's hold off on that for now. And uh, the answer is no. So I told John in a nice way that the band really didn't want him to uh, play. And he was uh, infuriated. Um, <laughs> he listened to say, he said, did he and, say, are you serious? Are you serious? <laughs> he, he was really mad. And um, uh, he looked at me and uh, his eyes just kind of changed. But um, I, I tried to smooth <laughs> things out. And um, he walked over to the uh, rock shop where we sell the merchandise. And, uh, uh, and here's the tour manager. He's sitting in there selling T-shirts. So um, we just happened to walk by. So um, I, I said, uh, yeah, this is uh, our, our rock shop. Uh, we sell Toad's T-shirts there. And the band's in here, too. So the, the guy says, hey, John, here, you want you want an NRBQ T-shirt? He, he, he gives it to John. And John yeah. looks at it. And he throws <laughs> it right back at him. <laughs> and hits him in the face and with it you know and then we just kept walking i said okay let's go and we kept going and um and, and that was that that was it for uh, that particular uh segment you know the funny um, thing about that is i mean nrbq they're first of all they, they played i think in the book it's estimated they might have played there a hundred times but they were famously this incredibly tight band who could play anything and they would sometimes just challenge the audience to stump them uh and they were able to go back decades at times in musical history in order to play stuff so maybe you'd think that they'd be comfortable you know with some guy jumping in with them but I, they're also such superb musicians i can imagine not wanting uh McEnroe up there any anybody named McEnroe up there for that matter i do want to quickly say just uh, as a little housekeeping item a lot of people know uh, every year we do a holiday show uh, with Al Anderson and Jim Chapdelaine and some other stuff. Al Anderson being for a long time the legendary guitarist of NRBQ. We are trying to figure out here in the kind of hopefully the waning days of COVID how we can do this. But if we can do it, we are going to do it again. Uh, Jonathan McPants and Jim Chapdelaine are trying to figure that out right now. So back to Toad's Place. Um, I, I think it's also, you know, just to go back to... Um, to, to what Sam Handelman was saying, um, you know, Randy, there's because Toad's Place has been around a long time. It's just been through so many different phases of music. So I might have been at a few shows with you with the kind of music that maybe we grew up with or were excited about at, when we were in our 30s or 40s. But I mean, you know, a few years ago for Christmas, I might gave my son Wu-Tang tickets to <laughs> Toad's Place. And so, Randy, that's one of the interesting things about here, right? This place has had to adapt to huge changes even in the style of music performed. Yeah, I really uh, admire Brian for, I mean, Brian's about my age. You know, we're, we're all in our you know, mid to late 60s, early 70s. And um, uh, I once asked Jimmy Koplik, uh, well, who, what bands are you booking now? And he said, you haven't heard of any of them. <laughs> and he's right, I hadn't when he listed a few of them. But but Brian has managed to stay adaptable and... Um, book book hip-hop bands i've never heard of and um and uh way back even in like it was 1992 
Naughty by Nature was coming through and I, I had no interest in going to that show, but my uh, nephew uh, living uh, in, in in New York was uh, into music, he's about 11 years old and, oh, Naughty by Nature, can I get it, come in and we go to Toad's <laughs> and uh, I said, sure, I'll take you in. And uh, we went into to Toad's and uh, he couldn't see above anybody. So we went up to the VIP section, they, the Toad staff helped us out. And Naughty by Nature played for about 20 minutes Brian thinks of more like 15 and they're grabbing their crotches and, uh, you know, kind of insulting the crowd and, uh, playing a couple songs and they just ran off the stage and they're gone. And that was it. So, uh, Brian <laughs> had to deal with a crowd and uh, I know in some sort of situations like that, he, he buys everybody free drinks to, to keep everybody happy because, uh, you know, it's a lot of money to pay for, for 15 minutes, but, uh, that's an example of, uh, through the years, the kind of situations and the changing music and the changing nature of the personalities and the bands. And sometimes you get those people before they are superstars. And Brian, that was the case with Kanye West, right? You booked him in 2004 when he didn't cast the kind of shadow he casts now. That's correct. Uh, we booked him right out of the studio and people knew who he was. So it was his first gig out of the studio. So he came in and we, we had a great night. We actually sold out, but um, he was just starting out. And his keyboard player that same night was John Legend. So John was on the stage um, playing keyboards because he was doing all the keyboard work in the studio. And um, the night went over great, except for the fact that that um, Kanye went on late. So some people were upset, but they weren't going to listen to a word I had to say. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, um, and, and every kind of music has been through there. As the book points out, Count Basie played there. I mean, Earl Scruggs played there. Um, so, Brian, I think another part of this is you kind of have to be willing to, to first of all, listen to what bookers are telling you, listen to what uh, what tour managers are telling you, uh, and, and trust the fact that the audience— you know, the Earl Scruggs audience will come and find Toads, even though they would never have had any reason to go there before. Right. We look at um, now we look at the social media and we see what's hot in the social media, whether it's um, Facebook, um, um, Instagram, TikTok or, um, or Spotify. And we see what's hot and um, and we decipher uh, what's going to do well in our area. And we try to put the appropriate bids in the best we can. So, Randy, do you have a, a favorite night? I mean, perhaps other than the ones we've already talked about, do you have a, a, a favorite act, a favorite night uh, that you spend at well, Toads? It has to be the Stones because um, I got a really good tip. Um, I was sitting around with my my wife in uh, New Haven that afternoon. It was a Saturday, and it was her birthday. And I was saying, well, what do you want to do for your birthday? And she said, I really want to go out dancing somewhere. But I looked at New Haven Advocate, couldn't find any listings. And I said, gee, this town is just, New Haven is just a boring place. What can I tell you? Uh, and then I looked at my answering machine, which was flashing, and I clicked it. And I heard, there's a real good chance the Rolling Stones will be playing at Toads tonight. So they might want to get down there. Just call me Deep Throat. So we <laughs> looked at each other and, whoa, and ran down to Toads. And uh, roll up to the door, and we see Sons of Bob listed. And I said to the guy at the door, Sons of Bob, who's really playing here tonight? He said, Sons of Bob, you coming in or not? Three <laughs> bucks, one cent. I said, okay. We paid our total of $6.02 and went in, and I saw the wig master, John Griffin, uh, a POR DJ I knew, and I said, is it true? And he smiled, and he whispered in my ear, 11 song set, 55 minutes. 
So went running downstairs that, oh, I got to call my buddies at the New Haven Register, tell them what's going on. Well, all the phones were taped down. You absolutely could not make a call outside. No cell phones in those days. And once you left, if you did try to leave, you would uh, then be told you can't come back in. The wigmaster at one point was downstairs waiting and he said uh, he saw two uh, two young ladies who said, what a chip, sons of Bob, we're here for a dance party. We're splitting. We're going to get out of here, sons of Bob. And I said to Wiggy, well, did you tell him you might want to stick around? And he said, nah, I figured let him suffer. <laughs> well, there's this incredibly tragic story uh, of this guy who is a musician and who knows it's going to be the Stones, but he's got a weekly gig somewhere else at some stake and sword place or something. Uh, and, and the phones are taped down and he's having trouble finding some way to, and he can't cancel. Uh, I felt so bad for that guy. He actually had to leave, I think, after 30 minutes yeah, yeah, uh, of the night. Uh, he was a stand-up guy and he, um, he, uh, honored his commitment to play at some uh, small club in Milford, I think. Uh, well, I mean, if you have a minute, the funniest thing was was the sons of Bob themselves. And I was lucky to find two of them, Ted Canning and James Poliski, uh, who uh, had played uh, with, 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 uh, with, with the bandmates at Toads as a local band. Uh, but they got a call a few days before the Stone Show from Mike Sperndle said, what are you guys doing Saturday night? I got a gig for you. And I said, well, geez, we've got another thing we have to do Saturday night. We have another gig. Well, well, this is a big thing, and it's over Jim Coplick's 40th birthday. And that was a cover story for yeah. uh, get people there for the Stone Show. And they said, well, maybe, uh, well, let us think about it. Sperndle said, you better you better call me back in 20 minutes, or I'm going to give the gig to somebody else. So uh, Poliski and uh, and Candy said, well, geez, yeah, maybe we should do it. Coplick's a big guy. Yeah, let's call him back. Let's do it. So they called Mike back and said, okay, we'll do it. And uh, but the, So they almost blew the whole thing. But when they got down there, they noticed uh, this big stage and uh, all this uh, fancy equipment and the people were helping them unload their stuff and bring it in. And, and they said, oh, yeah. Oh, yes. They heard the rumors that the Stones were uh, uh, rehearsing for their tour up in Washington, Connecticut for the Steel Wheels, Steel Wheels tour. And uh, they said, oh, yeah. It's true. And then Mike Spernal and Coppola came up and said, do you know who you're opening for tonight? The Rolling Stones. And uh, they said, but you got to stay here and you can't leave and uh, just be cool. So they, they, they played a 30 minute set. Uh, Mick Jagger won an opening act and uh, they got the Sons of Bob and Sons of Bob got to meet uh, the boys, making the boys backstage and uh, very nervous. Uh, Ronnie Wood, who said, do you think they'll like us up there? Do you think they'll be into us? <laughs> and the sons of Bob said, are you kidding? They'll, they'll tear the roof off the place. And Ronnie said, oh, good, 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 good. Because they hadn't played in front of anybody for eight years. The Stones were nervous. Uh, it's good to hear that. There's something kind of nice about that, uh, although the book also does contain some stories about people who perhaps had overblown senses of their own self-worth. So to hear that Dylan is surprised anybody wants to hear him, you know, develop some music or, or whatever, or that the Stones are nervous, that's great. Hey, we're almost out of time here, Brian. And obviously, COVID has been, you know, the worst possible nightmare for a lot of people and for a lot of reasons. Uh, and you're one of those people. Toad's Place has had to close for 18 months. So what's going on? What's that been like? And now what's going on now? Well, now we're reopened. We opened the last week of August, and we have a tremendous number of shows that we've brought in, and we've been doing really good since then, even though uh, we do check for um, to make sure everyone was, was vaccinated or have a negative test result, 
and um, people in New Haven still have to wear masks. So we, we follow all the guidelines and most of the people are vaccinated. So it works out pretty well. And the last thing I wanted to mention is that if you want to hear more stories about this or read more stories, the book not only is a good read, but it makes a great present for the holidays. So <laughs> it's a great present. Although it's not shaped very well for stock, stocking stuffers. Uh, I don't think you're going to be able to get it into <laughs> conventional st- uh, stockings. But no, it, it is the book's a lot of fun, brought back uh, all kinds of memories. We'll bring back so many memories. I mean, what we saw on social media was kind of incredible. People were just uh, very eager to, to share their stories. So great to talk to Brian Phelps and uh, Randall, Randall Beach. The book is The Legendary Toad's Place, stories from New Haven's famed music venue. We're going to take a little break. We're going to move east to a club whose destinies were often tied closely to Toads, that would be Shabu. the Shabu a lot in the late 70s from uh, either Yukon or, or even driving up from Waterbury in the summers. I saw Muddy Waters, James Cotton, Bonnie Raitt, so many others, uh, fantastic shows. But one show that really stands out to me is Roomful of Blues was playing and there was power failure. And since they could play as an acoustic band, you know, other than Duke Robillard's guitar, out came the candles and the show went on. Uh, it was great. There was uh, like an intimacy with, with the band and the audience. The audience all moved up close to that very low stage, and it became like a, a candlelight living room performance. They, they really sounded good, and, and Duke was belting out the blues and uh, just a really, really memorable evening. I don't remember the power ever coming back on, but um, what, what, a, what a great memory I have of that place. Those are the nights that you remember. Actually, I had the same experience with the the band, the Neilds, up at the Iron Horse in Northampton. Power went out. And they did a completely different kind of show as a result. Uh, I want to quickly, before we get into this segment uh, with uh, David A. Foster, former co-owner of the Shabu Inn, uh, I want to quickly thank, um, first of all, Kat Pastor, who's our technical producer today. She's the one who's making all these clips and music and things like that flow in and out. Uh, and, uh, of course, Betsy Kaplan, a senior producer, emeritus of the Kyle and McEnroe show, took it upon herself to produce this show about Toad's Place and Shabu Inn. Uh, joining us now is, in fact, David A. Foster, founder of Shabu and Mohegan All-Stars and the owner of Shabu Productions. Uh, he's been with us before. You know, I, I know him also just as a, uh, I, I thought, you know, we could probably call ourselves friends, although we don't see each other all that often. But uh, but uh, can I call do Should I call you David or can I call you Lefty? That's what I called you for decades. <gasps> Colin, you can call me anything you want, and it's nice to hear your voice, old friend. Good yeah. to hear your voice, too. So I'm going to just uh, – first of all, you know, it's interesting that he tells that story about Room Full of, uh, of Blues, and, and actually Brian told a story about seeing Room Full of Blues and playing a quarter. I think Bill paid $2.75 to see Room Full of Blues. But there are certain bands, I would say Room Full of Blues, Fabulous Rhinestones, Tower of Power, uh, NRBQ, who really just thrived in the kind of environment uh, that you had at Chicago and that Brian had a toes, right? Yeah, and Cotton uh, and Montgomery. Yes. James Montgomery, yeah. In fact, those, were the, those, those were like our lifeblood acts. In fact, let's hear a little bit of uh, James Cotton, who Lefty just mentioned. This is a Rocket 88. Mm-hmm. 
So one of the ways that you can uh, get a blues legend like James Cotton to feel comfortable uh, with a place like Shabu is uh, take them to dinner at your parents' house. And that's kind of what you did with James Cotton, right? Well, my parents, you know, my mother and father were professional singers. And they met and fell in love and ended up touring with the Dorseys and Harry James. And, you know, had a 17-piece band with a bus and they played all the big outdoor joints from here up to Boston, Canopy Lake, you know, up in Maine. I mean, they, they hit all the spots. So they loved music and instilled that in all of us children and really, you know, backed it for us. So, you know, uh, they would always come see Cotton and Muddy Waters. My mother and father, they loved the swing. They loved that swing stuff. So one night, you know, my father said, you know, look, why don't you invite Cotton? He's here all week. Why don't you invite him up to the house for, for supper on, you know, on Thursday night? And, you know, cause I'd love to share a little bit more time with him where, where he's, you know, he's not on the bandstand. So I, I know I asked James and James one, you, you, your daddy's house. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'd love to go. So anyway, we go up there and we're sitting at the table with my mother and my father. And all of a sudden Cotton says to me, he goes, Hey, cool breeze, pass the potatoes. So my father, you know, like peers into cotton so face and eyes and he had the dimples and he had the, the freckles on his face. And, you know, he always smoked a lot of pot and he, he he would drink a lot of Budweiser beers. So when you looked in his eyes, it looked like the street map of Philadelphia. I mean, it, it was, he was quite the character and he'd have that big smile, you know, and my father, my father's smile got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And he goes, uh, what'd you call my son? And he goes, Cool Breeze. I named him that. I got named him Cool Breeze. <laughs> so from that moment on, Colin, mm. and I went to visit my father every single day. I mean, I got married on Father's Day in his backyard. He was my best man. He was my best friend, my father. He taught me, you know, anything that I do right in this world, he taught me. Anything that I do wrong, he had nothing to do with. But anyway, for, for the rest of his <laughs> life, he had, he never called me David again i'd walk into his house i'd walk into the <laughs> office and he'd go he'd just take a look at me and go cool what's happening cool yeah and he'd just light up and i mean till the day he died it was cool you know so and, and then i'd always tell cotton and cotton go i named him that i named him that <laughs> he was so proud of it you know what i mean so you know that's just one story that the, the blues guys i mean there's so many wonderful moments colin that i could share with you and the audience you know because uh, they'd play all week long. It wasn't a one-nighters. They were there all week. Right. You know, it was all the legends before they died. You know, the Howlin' Wolves, the Freddie Kings, you know, the B.B. Uh, 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 King, Bobby Bland, Cotton, Muddy Waters, uh, Bo Diddley. I mean, you know, John Lee Hooker, a buddy guy in Junior Wells. You know, I mean, we had them all. And, you know, uh, I mean, what a gift that was. It was like going to Juilliard or school of music, <laughs> you know, except for the blues. Yeah, Juilliard of the and blues. I, yeah. And I love the blues, Colin. That, that, I mean, I just love the blues because, you know, I listened to it five nights a week. It was it was hypnotic, you know, the that shuffle beat, that swing. And it was just it was just so sexy. And you just swing with it, you know. So, you know, you know we collected all these voicemails. Uh, I'm going to play another one. I actually haven't listened to this voicemail. I don't know what she's going to say. I do know the person talking, Susan Graham Hanley. Uh, so let's hear what she remembers. 
Okay. In October of 1976, I celebrated my 21st birthday at the Shabu Inn. I couldn't think of a better way to celebrate my step into adulthood than cheap drinks and Jimmy Spheres at the Shabu. Sadly, Spheres was killed in a motorcycle accident back in 1984. So you fast forward about a million years and I hear an NPR piece about Jimmy Spheres' music being re-released. And it took me a few years to actually follow up on this but somehow I connected with one of Spears' former bandmates. And this guy told me that because of a conflict with Spears' estate, that his studio music was no longer available. But he did have one CD of live music, if I was interested. And he mentioned that it was recorded during a show at the Shabu Inn. And I stopped right there saying that I already knew the exact date of the recording. And I explained that I was there and that I had turned 21 at midnight that night. He sent me the CD for free, along with a really sweet note that said, here you go, birthday girl. <laughs> oh, that's a wonderful what story. Great, Lefty, what uh, a great story. Yeah. yeah. yeah and that's the other half of the story at a place like Shabu. The, you know, half of the story are these incredible musical acts who do crazy stuff because they're in an environment where they feel really comfortable and they'll play for three or four hours. But the other half are these fans, right? You must have gotten to know just a lot of people who came there time after time. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, and to look out and to see, it was so intimate because they wrapped around the stage. So they were like basically on the stage. I mean, the, 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 the musicians were like sweating on you. So, I mean, it was, it was so intimate and, the room was all wood, low ceilings, but it sounded good. There was no echo. And then, you know, we put this unbelievable sound system in. We spent so much money on it. It was the talk of the East Coast. It was the same people that did the sound for the Superdome in New Orleans did our install. And it was it was rocking. It was like, and it was all over your head. It was from one end of the room to the other in four-way stereo. So, I mean, no matter where you were, you were just getting sprayed beautifully against that wood <laughs> and, 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 you know, and then the packed crowd, the humans. So, I mean, the sound of the room was just brilliant. And, you know, it was very conducive for recording and making records. I remember Cotton made a double live record there. I think that track that you played was from the live record, maybe. Mm -hmm. It could have been because he, he did record that, that tune on the double live album. It was released on Buddha. And, uh, you know, I mean, that was, that was a thrill, too, to have a national label recording live stuff you know, in Willimantic, Connecticut, you're going, wow. <laughs> yeah, you know, that wood is, wood's an amazing thing. I mean, I, the Infinity up in Norfolk is an, is another one, another venue where ha that had that beautiful sound that was kind of bouncing uh, off the wood. But you don't get that that often in some of the newer places. So, you know, the other thing that she mentioned, Susan mentions, is turning 21 and being able to drink, uh, although that would have been right around the time the age dropped to, to 18, I, I think. But anyway... It's worth noting that when you took over the club, you could not uh, drink in the club. You were insufficiently old uh, to have a drink in your own nightclub. So what did you do about that? Well, I wasn't old enough to own anything either, so it was <laughs> tricky. So what I did was, you know, I put all my stock when we bought it in my older brother's name. And then, you know, because uh, otherwise, I mean, I'm, I, wasn't, I wasn't old enough to own anything. You know, uh, and the, the lawyer worked it out that way. And then when I, my 21st birthday, you know, he quick claimed my share back to me and my brother. But, you know, I mean, I used to go to the front bar and I'd say, hi, can I have a, can I have a Coca-Cola? And they go, Lefty, you can't, you know, you can't be in the bar room. And I go, but, but it's my bar. 
<laughs> and they go, yeah, I know, but you, look, go in the back room. We'll bring you a soda and go backstage and listen to the music. We'll bring you as much soda as you want. You just can't be in this room. Okay, you know. And, you know, uh, usually I either had a, a, a glass of Coca-Cola in my hand or a glass of milk, you know what I mean? But, uh, you know, I mean, it's just... It, it, that's what that was the reality of it. You know what I mean? I mean, I wasn't old enough to own anything. You know, right? I so was yeah, young. you young. Yeah. were you were drinking milk. Uh, you were one of the few people probably ever to drink milk at Shabu, but they they had to have some for you. We should also mention the famous hand stamp. Uh, there was a certain stamp that you could get uh, if uh, if you were if if a person uh, a potential audience member were able to successfully invoke their connection to you. Tell us about that. Well, see, everybody, you know, I did all the nights. I did all the band nights, especially in the summertime, because all my partners loved to play softball. And they'd go to the park and play softball, and they go, well, Lefty will run the club. He doesn't care about sports. He just wants to listen to the blues all night. He doesn't care, so he'll run the club. So everybody knew me. They didn't know, you know, a lot of the other partners. They just knew me. So they'd, they'd use my, you know, they'd say, hey, I know Lefty when they get to the front door. Try to get in free, you know, say, Hey, look, Lefty doesn't charge me. I'm like one of his buddies, you know. This must have happened like 100 times a night. So finally, we had a door stamp made, I know Lefty. So people would stop doing that because, you know, they were constantly doing that and saying, I know Lefty, you know, can I get in free? But, you know, and then it was funny, too, because we had the one-way mirror at the front door where you could see out, but you couldn't see in, you know, and we had a hotel license, which gave us a little bit of breath where you know, we, we had, a, because it was a hotel license, not a restaurant license, you had more freedom to do things. So anyway, a few nights when we went overtime, you know, uh, it's, Freddie King wouldn't stop one night. He was on stage. He just wouldn't <laughs> stop playing. So, you know, uh, we just locked the door. And then uh, finally the police came around, I don't know, one thirty, and uh, and they said, you know, uh, they knocked on the door and I said, I'm sorry, we're closed. We're not allowed to open the door. And they said, and they said, well, it's the state police. They said, it doesn't matter. We're not allowed to open the door. He goes, well, I really need to make an emergency phone call. So I said, there's a payphone right behind you. <laughs> so we wouldn't let the cop in, you know, because we had that kind of a license where we didn't have to open the door for anybody. So it kept us, you know, from getting, you know, ended up in jail because, you know, and then eventually people would go out the side door after the cops had left. And, you know, I mean, we got around a lot of things because of that hotel license, but. I mean, you know, so many nights backstage where uh, Buddy Guy and Junior Walls were there one night and, uh, you know, they were doing this song called Watch Yourself and Junior was smoking a cigarette on stage and I was backstage and I had this beautiful aqua Caribbean colored corduroy suit on. It was like an English suit that I bought at the UFO in Hartford. You know, remember that that hippie clothing I store? Do, I do, I do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Any, anyway... And I had the $300 pair of British, you know, high heel uh, shoes. And, you know, I was, I was looking quite English. Anyway, I'm backstage watching the show. So I take my, I, my eyes off Junior and Buddy for a minute because I noticed this, these gorgeous girls. They were dancing and smiling and they were just pretty. So, you know, my attention shifted to them for a second. But unbeknownst to me, when I shifted my attention, Junior Wells flicked his cigarette. And the cigarette ended up in the cuff of oh. my suit. So corduroy, you know, is highly flammable. Oh, no. So in a matter of like four seconds, my right leg was on fire Ooh. backstage. And you know, they put me out with the curtain. That's how I got put out. 
you know, they took the black curtain behind the stage and, 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 and put the fire out. And then I look back and Junior Walls is pointing at me saying, watch yourself, you know, completely <laughs> on fire. So I'm just saying, you know, I mean, you can't make this stuff up, Colin. You know no, no, mean? you cannot. I didn't you know that. Stu- I, you, you I had not heard it up. I had not yeah. heard that story. We've known each other a really long time. Yeah, we're kind of running out of time here. And I do want to say that, first of all, uh, uh, Lefty went on, has gone on to become a tremendous vocalist fronting the Shabu All-Stars. I don't know if you remember this, but I actually sang with the Shabu All-Stars one time at the Jorgensen. Badly, I think. But uh, but I did sing with them. I, I remember that. Yeah, it was, was unforgettable, actually. We did, we did nothing new. Uh, the Rhinestones yeah. did. But, yeah, um, yeah. but you've also done this amazing thing with this new Shabu stage in Jilson Square and Willimantic. You know, we only have about a minute left, and you don't do well with just a minute. But quickly Explain about that and the whole project of feeding people. Well, I, I built this stage uh, to finish my life in, in, the, in the center park of Willimantic. It's a beautiful, you know, seven acre park. It holds about 8,000 people, had it fenced in and built a, a world-class, you know, stage that you could play the Rolling Stones or Bruce Springsteen, or if Aretha was still alive, you could do Aretha Franklin with the Boston Pops. It's that big. It's 90 feet across you know, 70 feet deep. And then the steel up 30 feet uh, up into the roof that can fly 18 tons of sound lights and, 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 uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, all that stuff for visuals. So, you know, so I'm just saying we we can do anybody and anything. And all I do is charity work there for the rest of my life. I've dedicated it where I I give money to the soup kitchens. I I feed the poor. uh, I help the sick at the hospitals. I, no matter what I do there, I do it through music and I, and I pay for all the, 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 the cost of the concert. And then every penny that comes in goes to the charity. So it's a guarantee. Well, that's a, that's a great thing. a lot thing. of enjoyment doing that. It's a great yeah. thing. Well, listen, yeah. Lefty, thank you so much for talking to us. I should also probably thank uh, our mutual friend, Eric Tulin, who helped Betsy Kaplan get in touch with you. I told Betsy Kaplan not to eat or drink anything that Eric provides her. I've been, I was in, <laughs> Eric and I were in strollers. To, literally, we've known each other so long, we were in strollers together. And one time I accidentally put his pacifier in my mouth and I got high. It's been going on for that long. Uh, yeah, he's, been, he's been a friend of mine for that long, too. And- <laughs> I'm afraid to go to Costa Rica as well. But. <laughs> All right. Well, we got to go. We got to go. But uh, we're going to go out with a little bit of music here uh, with you singing.